Father, we delight to come into your presence. We delight to be the recipients of your love and your affection. And God, as well as warm, fuzzy feelings, God, we like to hear stuff and know stuff and understand stuff. And so I ask today that you'd give me skill in communicating. You'd give all of us ears to hear. And not just um, any words that I may come up with, but Holy Spirit, what you're saying to us, your people. God, would you be here in such a, a, a tangible way this morning. Help us all as we imbibe your word, as we drink on your goodness, and as we get nourished by all that you have for us. God bless us, we ask. Amen. Yes, so thank you. I'm, uh, I'm Nick. I'm a father of four. John Nick's number three. And uh, I am a very proud parent, so uh, get the, the mushy stuff out of the way, if you like. I thought I'd tell you a little bit about me, but, you know, the trouble is, is that It'll come out in the story, shall we say, but I did just, as I was reflecting, think I've been loved by Jesus for 37 years. That's uh, an amazing thing. I look back with a lot of thankfulness um, for what God's done, but also for his grace towards me, how he's covered over many of the mess-ups and many of the things that I'd rather people weren't there. It'd be sometimes nice, but probably not nice to have a time machine and just to sort of whiz back in time and see your younger self. And I think the rose-tinted spectacles view is probably a nicer view than the harsh reality of what it was really like. Um, but I do look back with some, with some um, thankfulness. And a lot of what I've learned comes under this um, self-kindness. I've learned to, to be kind to myself. And, and largely this is just understanding, well, if God forgives me, then how can I not forgive myself? If God is gracious towards me, then I perhaps need to be gracious to myself. And, and, and I've learned some stuff along the way. So we're going to talk about that. And so we're talking in general in our themes of our values, of particularly presence at the moment. And I was quite pleased to get this particular topic. So I'm talking about the presence in the context of the kingdom of God. So presence with the kingdom of God. And uh, we're going to look through this. And I thought it'd be useful just to look at a bit about values and about presence and why we're doing this. And we're looking at values as a church, what we value, because we prize authenticity. We, we want integrity. Uh, and it's a terrible thing to have things that might be on a signboard or there in a document, but they don't match at all the, the lived out reality of our individual or our corporate lives. So we want integrity. And in our mission statement, we say that we believe that part of our mission statement is, is hope until earth looks like heaven. And so part of what we want is we want to understand what is the kingdom of heaven and does it look like that in the earth around us. And so we've been doing, God's been speaking so much. And we look back at our rich Christian heritage about those that have gone before us and all that we've learnt. And we're looking forward, and our aim is to constantly learn and to constantly adapt. Because the, the, the danger when things get precious, when, when people have got hold of something that they really treasure, is you kind of want to put it in a glass cage and don't touch a glass case and don't touch it and get a, a shiny spotlight on it. And isn't this amazing? Well, yes, it's amazing, but if the truths of God become encased in glass with a bright, shiny light on them and they no longer influence our lives, and that is the biggest travesty at all. So just like any family, we're changing, our needs are changing, having kids, you remember back to the baby stage, the toddler stage, many of you are there at the moment. Um, and you know there are needs that a family has in those stages that are very different to the teenagers, the young adults, and, and so on. And so as our family grows, our needs change, and our understanding of God as a father, 
and what we as a family need um, is also growing and adapting. And so it's in that context of growing and developing, it, we've felt it necessary to really hone in on what is most important to us. What are the things that really become foundations and, and ideas that then activities can spring from? And another reason to look at, at values is that um, we believe in, a diver in diversity. We believe that God is bringing many, many reflections of his creation, people. Um, and how can you have lots of people together that don't just end up looking like one person or like one group? But how do you have it as a people who are together? And so what we're setting out are the principles, if you like, that we believe guide us, the values that are common to us, what we understand by those. And that then means if people have a heart that's shared amongst us and values that we all can agree to, then we can experiment, we can explore, we can see different things, and it doesn't have to be like it's been before, as long as it still matches with everything that we hold dear. So we thought it was important to set out what we believe. And another reason why you need, we want to do this is that everyone can say that, oh yes, we agree with this or that, but do we actually understand what we mean when we say those words? And, and I find words really quite tricksy, because... Uh, I say one thing and you say the same thing, but I mean something different to what you mean. And do we actually agree that this word means the same thing amongst all of us? So we wanted to spend a bit of time looking through that. But mainly we wanted to talk about this because the worst thing is if we go through a process of looking at values and we end up with a nice document or a sign on a wall and it doesn't influence behavior. Um, and so that is, is the, the key driver behind this, that we make our actions match our words. So I thought it'd be useful just to do a bit of a definition. What are values? Um, and so I've got here that values are important and lasting beliefs or ideals that are shared by members of a culture. What is good? What is bad? What's desirable or undesirable? So these values then determine what we prioritize, what we give our time and our energy to. They also say what we allow in and what we keep out. You can say in a family, that's not what we do here. Well, if you understand why that's not what we do here, then it's based on a value. If you just think, well, that's just what we do, then it's become a rule. And this is what we want to do to avoid rules, but be guided by values. So we want values that influence both personal behavior and group behavior, and this served as broad guidelines in all situations. And so we've highlighted three core um, values to, to concentrate on, and that's presence, freedom, and legacy. Um, but within each of those, there's so much that we couldn't just do. There you go, the presence of God, uh, and think you've covered it. But my job today is to talk a bit more about the presence of God and see if I can weave in a bit about the kingdom of God without my device dying on me. Always a challenge. So we talk about the presence of God, and we mean... The, the manifest, the felt, the experienced presence of God, because clearly God's omnipresent. Psalm 139 verse 7 says, where can I escape from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to hell, you're there. And the psalmist clearly knew that God was everywhere. Um, and, and yes, that's true. God's everywhere, but you feel God everywhere. So we're concentrating particularly on the felt or the experienced presence of God. In John 14, 23, Jesus said that, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And that sense of God abiding, God's presence, God's home with us, 
is the presence that we're longing for, that we have that awareness, that lived experience of living in the presence of God. And I love that verse from Jesus there, that the criteria is if anyone loves me. It's not if anyone's done religious penance, if anyone's read the Bible several times, if everyone has an hour's quiet time of meditation and contemplation every day, if anyone's you know, skilled in worship, if anyone does good works around the world. No, if anyone loves me, we will make our home with them. And, and so it's important to remember that while you can experience the corporate gathering and a sense of God's presence there, buildings that might have a certain atmosphere, you don't need that to enjoy the presence of God. And as I was studying, I, I'm not a great one for Hebrew words, but I love the fact that the Hebrew word that was most used for the presence of God is panim, which is also translated face. And that sense of when we see God's presence, that's like looking into his face. It's not a, well, he must be around here somewhere, sense of God's presence. It is the face of God. We see him clearly. And when you think about looking into someone's face, that really is a very personal, very tender sometimes um, moment. You actually are quite close, uh, closer still if your eyesight's not great, but you're looking at someone's face. You can see so much. You can see what's happening, what their heart is. You also see their attention. Are they distracted or are they looking right at you? And, and just knowing that closeness, the presence of God is like looking into his face. So, a bit of a, a scene setting about values and about presence. Um, it's always good when you're looking through the Bible to find out what God says about a subject to start at the beginning. So I am going to be dotting around today, so forgive me for that. But we'll look at Genesis. Um, and if you turn to Genesis 1, chapters 26 to 31, and also Genesis 3, verse 8, and we're going to come back to that a few times. So Genesis 1, 26, I read from the English Standard Version. Sometimes we manage to get the words up in the New International, but it's probably best not to, Simon, so just, uh, just leave it. I'll confuse people. So Genesis 1, 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And just to pause there, God's intention was to make man like himself. And let us, let us make man after our likeness. And right there in the beginning, there's the idea of fellowship and connection. Right there at the beginning is the fact that God wanted us to have fellowship with him, to enjoy his company. So just like there was the intimacy and the family and the connection in heaven, God wanted the same with, his, with man that he'd created. And skipping on to Genesis 3 verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And just pausing there, that, that notion that Adam and Eve heard a sound and they knew exactly what it was. It wasn't a mystery. It wasn't some once in a millennia event that, oh, I wonder what's going on here. No, this was their everyday experience. They knew that sound was the sound of God walking in the garden looking for them. He wanted fellowship with them. So we're, const we're const um, created to have fellowship with God. Even as you think ahead to Moses, um, Moses instructed the people to be holy and to have camp, not just to have more rules, but because of God's presence. God was present in the tabernacle. But Moses said um, in Leviticus 26, 12, that I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. It was very clear that God was not just going to be in one spot in the camp. He was going to be walking all the way through the camp. God's intention is always to be to walk amongst his people, to walk with his people, to be up close and personal with his people. Moses was so convinced of the 
necessity of the presence of God. There's those famous verses in Exodus 33, verses 14 to 16. So God's sending them on, and um, he says that my presence will go with you. There's been a bit of a sort of uh, discussion with Moses, but God says my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he, Moses, said to God, if your presence will not go with me, don't bring us from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight? I and your people, is it not in your going with us so that we're distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. So what Moses had learned through his life was to prize the presence of God. And not just that this was a good thing and things went well, that if God didn't go, it's not worth living. And that's such a tender testimony to how he carried God's heart. And he was a man who was meek in all the earth, but he just humbled himself constantly before God and just said, if you don't go, it's not worth going, don't send us. So we're all agreed that the main thing that we long for is more of the presence of God. And so looking at that, what does that mean, um, more of the presence of God? Well, as we said, God is um, present with himself in heaven. So if heaven is where God is, and basically if it's not, God's not there, it's not heaven, we need to know a bit more about what heaven looks like. One of the things I was thinking of is that heaven is where God's will is expressed. That basically, God makes heaven look like he wants it to happen. If he doesn't want it to happen, it's not in heaven. So you can think of heaven as being the place that's ordered and organized and constructed and you know what's allowed in, what's not allowed in is all because of what God likes, what God wants. So his will is fully expressed in heaven. And then we come to the kingdom of God. And the kingdom is where the will or the rule of the king is expressed. So that's basically what heaven is. Heaven is the kingdom of God. But Jesus said, when he cast out demons, he said, now the kingdom of heaven has come amongst you. When he came and healed the sick, he said, the kingdom of God is here. So what Jesus did is he brought something that was in heaven and brought it onto the earth. Even in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus asked us to pray, our Father in heaven, our Father, we're your children, we're connected with you, where you are in heaven, you've joined us with you. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is my point today, that we were created for a relationship with God, but that immediately looks like bringing his will and his order and his rule on the earth. Going back to Genesis, um, just a little bit of those verses there, Genesis 1:26. I'll read out the passage. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creepy thing, creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you plants for seed and for food, and every tree with seed for food I've given them. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps and has breath, I've given plants for food. And so it was, it was so, and God saw that everything he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning, the sixth day. So how many words are in there? Rule, subdue, dominion. Um, it's all about bringing order, bringing the will of God so that earth looks more like heaven. And so as we as God's children 
living in his presence, learning more and more to be in the presence of God, that will look like bringing his rule, his will, his kingdom on the earth. I'm just battering this point home here. Psalm 8 um, again says, What is mankind that you're mindful of him? Human beings that you care for them. You made them a little lower than the angels, but crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over your works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. Now, that touches so much, really. Do you believe that? Do you believe that actually this is who God has made you to be? You can think perhaps those corporately, perhaps great Christendom in general, but that's you. You are a ruler in God's kingdom. You are something that God says. He has put the works of his hand in your rule. You're here to bring his kingdom rule to everything that's around you. Looked at uh, Adam, looked at, uh, at Moses, looking at David, who is definitely a man after God's heart. Um, I love Psalm 84, verses 10 and 11. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. He was such a man of presence, such a man who loved being where God was. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. He prized being in God's presence. And his language is all of courts. Now, clearly he was a king. He had a court. That was his every day. But I think he grasped something more than just, hey, this is my world. You know, it's a court. Get used to it. I think he got something of the kingly court of heaven. And in his encounters with God, as his time in God's presence, he was experienced of something that happens in heaven that looked like a court. Now, we're not royalty. We don't live in courts and the best experience I've got is from those films and what have you, from Knights of the Round Table times. But you get that sense, don't you, of the, the king there on the throne and the courtiers all around. And you get to see in these films about the, the intrigue and the vying for position. But they all knew that getting near to the king meant something. It, get, get, it gave them uh, the right to petition. They could bring their requests. It meant that they might get... Um, gifts or influence or resources or whatever it was that they were trying to do, they could come before the king. Now, what a great deal. We don't have to vibe for position. We don't have to be those who jockey with the others. There's no competition. Our king is not limited in his abilities to give each of us his undivided attention. So we can come into the king's presence any time and every time. We can all come at the same time and ask for wisdom. We can ask for grace. We can ask for whatever it is, our petition that we're needing. And we can find his resources, his grace coming towards us. And I think sometimes intimacy, um, is, it's lovely to think about intimacy with God, but I think we've turned intimacy a little bit into buddy, that Jesus is my pal. And while there's that closeness and that connection that sometimes loses something that the fact that Jesus is sitting on a throne at the right hand of the King of Heaven. And there's something more precious when we realize that, yes, there's an intimacy and a connection, but that intimacy is in the context of a heavenly throne room. And how much greater is our wonder and our amazement at what God's bought for us when we see that Jesus isn't just my heavenly pal, let's go for a walk somewhere. He is so close that he wants that fellowship with us but this is Jesus sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And perhaps that changes our awe and wonder at what he's done for us, but also our confidence in what he wants to release for us. This isn't just another chap wandering the earth, but this is the king of heaven.
So we were created to reflect heaven. We were created to enjoy the presence of heaven, but also to see the rule of heaven. And so we're going on this journey, and we are far from understanding all of this. And we're just sort of setting out a bit of a sort of a baseline to move on from. Um, but we have learned something about the kingdom of heaven, that it is about relationship. It does look like family. Um, and it is characterized by intimacy, about acceptance, about deferring to one another. I've heard of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, being very much like a dance. And just that moving and you know, allowing one another to take a lead at any one time. Um, and, and anything you know, further from a, a horse race and a competition. So that's a bit of the scene setting, and I'm keen to sort of look and see, well, what does that mean for you and me? Because when we think about kingdoms, when we think about courts, when we think about kings, we often think about rules. And the rule of God doesn't mean the rules of God. And sometimes these words like values or rules, we can overuse them and miss the point behind them. That rule means will, so the will of God. And it's not about the rules of God. Um, because our mindset is very often one of performance. It's very often one of judgment and success or failure. We, we get praised when we do well. We get punished when we do badly. And when we hear words like Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. It can be like, a bit like, do the right thing and you'll be okay. Do the wrong thing, you'll get a slap. Um, but if you view those words, if you love me, from the point of a desired relationship, of family, of intimacy and acceptance then it much more becomes, why would I do anything else? Why would I do anything other than all that Jesus longs for? Because I just want to thrill him. I just want to do it. There's no fear. It says that Jesus went about doing what he saw the Father do. He was looking to heaven and wanting to see that expressed on earth. That wasn't out of fear. Jesus didn't fear the Father's displeasure. It was out of love, out of everything he knew Father to be. And he wanted to give his Father even more joy by doing that. In fact, so much so, I read this just recently, Hebrews 5 verse 8 says that Jesus learnt obedience. Jesus, the King of Heaven, learnt obedience. He laid down his divinity. He put that to one side. He didn't lose it. He was still, still God. But he chose to act as a man. And he learnt to obey. And his obedience, again, wasn't out of fear. It was out of wanting to express his love for the Father. So if Jesus is our model and Jesus chose to learn, how much more should we learn? How much more should we give ourselves and apply ourselves to doing things that please Father? So I've looked a bit at Adam, a little bit of Moses, David, Jesus. Can it get much better? Well, I'm actually going to talk about a 17th century monk Brother Lawrence, I don't know if you've any of you read The Practice of the Presence of God. I've got the book and I've read a few chapters. Um, it's a great book, but anything written in the 17th century, there's a little challenge of language there. So, but it is a very short book. And basically, it's a collection of conversations. So Brother Lawrence didn't write the book. Um, but he was, he was in the 17th century. He was a soldier, actually. And he had an encounter with God while he was out on the battlefield, so much so that he decided to give his life just a serving in the monastery. So he was a lay monk. And basically, he worked as a kitchen hand. He peeled potatoes, he prepared vegetables, he swabbed and cleaned the floor. He progressed through his career to mending sandals. Um, so he clearly was 
not looking for position and, and what he could actually do is doing. But he gave his whole life. And people said of him, there's such a, an, a profound peace about him, such an obvious deep relationship with God. And uh, just reading from his little book here, he learned to develop an awareness of the presence of God in everything that he did. And his method, method was that he'd always been governed by love, without selfish views, and that having resolved to make the love of God the end of all of his actions, he found reason to be well satisfied with his method. That he was pleased when he could pick up a straw from the ground for the love of God, seeking him only and nothing else, not even his gifts. That in order to form the habit of conversing with God continually and referring all that we do to him, we must at first we must first apply some diligence, but that after a little care, we should find his love inwardly excites us to it without any difficulty. So basically he's saying he worked at it for a while, but after that found it easy, and not only easy, exciting to do things for the love of God. So God's intention for Adam, and, and therefore the whole of mankind, we were created for relationship. Um, and I just read briefly that bit about, you know, God was looking for him in the, in the cool of the day. That word cool can mean breeze. And you just imagine that, you know, it's been hot and sweaty through the day, been busy. And then the evening breeze comes on a summer evening, not a freezing breeze on a winter evening. Um, but God was looking for conversation. I just tried to let my imagination run a bit and, uh, and what would it have been like? So God's given Adam this mandate to fill the earth and subdue it, multiply and be fruitful, and so probably at the end of the day, there's a bit of a get-together. And I can imagine that God just wanted to hear from Adam. So what did you find out? What did you do? And he was looking for Adam to share. Wow, it's amazing. We did this. That's great. That's great. Why didn't you try this tomorrow? And that conversation that would go at the end of the day, sharing all that he'd done. And I actually had this thought that if all that Adam did was sit at the bend in a river and just admire the water and the way the light reflected off it just looked at the plants at the side and the, the fish and the animals that came to and he just was consumed with the beauty of it all and he came back and told God at the end of the day do you think God would be telling him off is that all he did sat on a riverbank um, I just think God would be thrilled and delighted that Adam was enjoying enjoying his creation and that would also speak so much of Adam's trust of God Adam knew that he could just enjoy the the blessing of the the creation of God, trusting that God would still provide. So that was God's intention for Adam, um, that he, he never fully grasped and didn't live in the good of, of that close relationship. But it was Jesus' reality, it was what Jesus went around doing good. He spent time up the mountainside um, just praying and giving himself to connecting with God and then came down and, and just saw things happen around him. Um, and I think this is really what I've learned over the years, that it's so easy to compartmentalize our lives, that we think we've got a, a worship bit and a Bible reading bit and then a doing work bit and then a sleeping bit and eating bit and then seeing your friends bit. But what Jesus demonstrated, and I think what God's intention for Adam was, and certainly what Brother Lawrence learned to do, was that everything becomes an act of worship. Everything, every activity is us enjoying God and God enjoying us. And really just this principle then that God's looking for connection and not performance. So thinking of 
the presence of God expressed in the kingdom of God and just that notion, we sing that song, don't we, when God, uh, when God turns up, everything changes, that we then become the ambassadors. It was lovely to hear some of the, uh, the words that were coming this morning through worship and at the end there. We are his ambassadors and that when we show up full of the presence of God, our expectation now is that everything changes around us that just as Jesus was a man operating under the influence of the Holy Spirit and he said the kingdom of heaven is now amongst you, we too can say that because of enjoying the presence of God. So I'm going to sort of just finish off with a few things that, that I've learned over the years of what keeps us from enjoying God's presence and what are some of the, the tools, if you like, of helping us enjoy God's presence. And I think the first thing that enjoying the presence of of God hinges on is identity. How do you see yourself? Do you know who you are? Do you know God's unconditional love for you? Um, It'd be great just, we're going to have some time of people praying right at the end there, but if you don't know God's love for you, if you don't know that he's made you his child, um, then we would love to pray with you um, and to see that. But do you know that? Do you know that his unconditional love also means that he's taken the punishment for every sin? I mean, I would love to spend the whole morning just talking about the fact that we are now unpunishable. There is no punishment no matter what you do. Lovely people, no matter what you do, God will never punish you. I don't know if that sinks in at all or whether those are just words that if you just allow that to to sink in there, you can never be punished by God for anything that you do now because Jesus has paid the price. If God needs to punish you, that means that Jesus didn't do enough or that Father was somehow you know, contrary and he wasn't being honest. No, God has given all punishment to Jesus. Jesus was sufficient sacrifice for that. So do you know that you can do no wrong? You can mess up and that mess up will hurt people and you know, that needs to be cleaned up and there are consequences. But in terms of our standing before Father, we will never beloved any less than when God looks at Jesus in the face. And just how do you see yourself? Do you know this? Because that will determine your willingness to come into God's presence. If you think and see yourself as a sinner who's still constantly messing up, then that's going to keep you from the Holy One. But if you know that Jesus has taken the punishment for every sin and you can do no more than thank him and accept that, then let's rush into Father's arms and let him do all that he wants to do to bless us. Another thing that can keep us away is anxiety. Uh, anxiety, I'm a GP, so a lot of my week is talking to people and lots of the things that people come to the doctor to talk about often stems from anxiety and anxiety causes so many things uh, for so many people. But the biggest issue of anxiety is that it causes us to look at ourselves. It causes us to take our eyes away from Father towards our good bits or our bad bits, it makes us a lot more inward focused. We start to think, well, I can do this and I can't do that. Well, what if it's nothing to do with what you can or can't do? What if it's all to do with what God can do? And just as we know the verse that says, perfect love casts out fear, fear and love are mutually incompatible, that fear can displace love. And if we allow fear in, then suddenly are we experiencing the love of God anymore? And all of this is is a distraction. It's the enemy's tactic to take our attention away from the God who loves us. 
there's a verse that I've learnt over the years, um, Philippians 4 verse 6, um, and it's a good chunk of verses actually, I'm just picking the middle one. But the Lord is near, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And you get that verse, and sometimes people take little bits of a verse, don't they? And they say, be anxious for nothing, brother. And, uh, and suddenly that becomes a guilt arrow, doesn't it? Because I am feeling anxious. So if I'm feeling it, does that mean it's wrong? And we've got to be so careful and kind to ourselves that feelings are feelings. And to deny feelings means I'm denying part of what makes me a human. You can feel a feeling, but the point is, where do you let your mind dwell? Because the verses go on to say, whatever is good, whatever um, worthy, whatever's of noble, noble or of good report, think on these things. It's not saying don't feel feelings, but it is saying make a choice. The fact that it is a command, it is an instruction, God wouldn't say it if we couldn't choose. So if God says, be anxious for nothing, that is make a choice. Choose to turn away. And how do you do that? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God with thanksgiving. So you turn your attention, you turn your attention from the thing that's causing anxiety to the one who will then help you out of it. Good stuff. So I'm just going to, I really had a huge challenge. I was going on and on and on and I had about way too much to talk about. So I'm just going to finish up with some of the things that I've learnt. Um, and uh, the first of these, I think, is to live a life of thankfulness. Um, I think thankfulness opens the door for God's presence. And I've learnt thank to God to thank God for, for as many things as I can remember in life. One of the things that always makes me smile is every time I get a parking space, I always thank God now because I've trained myself to do that. If I get a green light, and definitely if you get two green lights in a row, <laughs> then I, I've trained myself and said, you know, that could just be right. It probably is random. I don't care. I've chosen to thank God for that. And I see that as God's blessing to me. I almost didn't say this, but... Um, no, that's the next bit. Isn't it? Sorry, thanking God it is also good to thank those around you. And just having that hab- habit of thankfulness, if you thank the people around you, whoever it is, shopkeeper, friend, your nearest and dearest who's done what they always do, but saying thank you to them, um, that can then create a, a practice and a habit of praise. And it also avoids this um, sense of entitlement that um, you know, can creep in. Well, yeah, you should do that, shouldn't you? And so if we keep on thanking God, thanking everybody, um, that really does avoid problems, but actually opens up the door to being more aware of God's goodness. And thankfulness is particularly important when we just don't know what's going on, when there isn't an easy answer to why is life like it is? Why am I feeling like this? Why is this happening to me? Why is it still happening to me when I've been praying these good prayers? You know, mysteries happen, and we don't always understand why God is allowing things to happen. But if we cultivate a practical practice of thankfulness, we can always find something to thank God for. God's word said he's near and he promises never to leave us. Whether you feel it or not, but it's still true that that's what he promises. Um, we can make a choice to thank God in every situation that he's promised that he loves us, and we can do that. The next thing I learned to do was to see God in everything. This is one I was nearly jumping ahead, and I read in the Bible that rain equals blessing. 
Now, clearly this is for some Mediterranean climate where uh, rain might not happen as often as it does here. And so, as really, God, it doesn't feel as cold, it's wet. But I just thought, well, I've got a choice. I can either put my head down and scurry, or I can think, well, if we didn't have rain, this would be a dry desert, and things wouldn't be green and lush. So perhaps it is a blessing. And I just made a choice to view rain as a blessing. And so I don't do it as much now, it does happen every so often. But I chose to look up when it rains and just let the blessing of God fall on me and thank God. Now, I still scurried and got into the warm and I wasn't there for too long. It's not that heroic. But I made a choice to use something that happened every day, every day, to turn it as an opportunity to thank God. And what then went from that is suddenly when I was in the shower, that's rain falling on my face. So it's another opportunity to thank God and to see God in everything. I chose to make moments through my day where I just stood still and just breathe in and just imagine as I'm breathing in that I'm breathing God in. I mean, God's everywhere, but you can just, that awareness and cultivating and making these habits. So what could you do? What ways could you imagine just to experience more, choose some everyday things that you do and draw God into it? And as you do that and make it a habit, then it becomes an easy thing and an automatic thing. And you find you start to see God in everything. An amazing verse to learn is Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And this is what I'm meaning here about this. Setting God continually before you. If the first thing that you see is God, and through that you see everything else, and everything that you see then becomes a reminder of God. That is setting God continually before you. And that's something that you can do. It's a habit. It's just as I read from the Brother Lawrence bit. It's something you've got to practice and work at. But after a while, it becomes automatic and easy. Another top tip, be a worshipper. This is some very good advice when I was a young Christian running around in the meeting, trying, what, what can I do? How can I help? And a church leader then just said, just be a worshipper. And that's true in the gathered, you know, when we're all gathered together. But it's also true all day, every day. Just choose to turn your moments, whether they're short times or long times, that's not the point. The point is, did you sense God's presence? Did you stay there long enough until you felt his affection for you? Above and behind and in and around all this is hunger. How much do you want the presence of God? That will determine everything that you do. I've been looking for a cartoon picture that it was a book it was a book about chocolate um, I don't know quite why but anyway I had this book of chocolates um, way 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 back when and there's a picture in there and it was all animal cartoons and so I'm going to try and describe a picture it's probably going to fall flat but bear with me um, there's a little rabbit with a microphone and he was going interviewing people and there were different scenes within the book and uh, so the rabbit with the microphone comes across another rabbit and he's saying do you like chocolate and he gets the yeah sure but then the rabbit moves on and he finds a hippopotamus. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to do this justice. Um, and he asks the hippopotamus, do you like chocolate? Oh, yes, please. You know, there's a, a total difference in the hunger and the appetite between the little rabbit who, you know, wasn't that bothered and the hippopotamus who clearly lived a life loving chocolate. So, so hunger is important. Another thing I've learned, I've sort of touched on this, is forming habits and disciplined. discipline. If Jesus learned obedience, then how much more should we do things? Can we expect just to get stuff without applying ourselves if Jesus didn't? Read scripture is a good habit. Do it often, do it regularly. 
And again, read until God speaks to you. Don't just think, well, I've done my passage for the day. The purpose in reading scripture is because God wrote it. And when God wrote it, he will speak. And even if you've read the passage before, um, I just love reading through the Bible. That's the main way I read the Bible, just go through it. And you can read the same thing again and again, and God does pick out a little something that you've convinced you've never seen before. But when you're reading, it's not just a dry story, it's God's love letter to you. So you can paint yourself in there. I often imagine, what would it be like to be with Jesus' disciples? What would it be like to, to be, a, you know, whatever miracle was happening? You know, how did it feel? What did it look like? Jesus sent them away on the boat. You're on that boat with the other disciples, and Jesus is back there up a mountain. What, what does it feel like? And imagine yourself in there. So read doing that. We talked about anxiety, and one of the worst things about anxiety is it can be everyone's normal. And often you don't realize what level of anxiety that you're, you're living with. So another thing I've learned to do is self-awareness. Just sort of, okay, there's a bit of tension here, and just that deep breath moment with God, just, okay, yes, and breathe. Um, and another tool to, to anxiety and to busting anxiety is laughing at myself. I've learned not to take myself too seriously. Um, so <clears throat> nearly there. A big thing in, that I've learned, uh, perhaps more so recently, is that we're all different. Um, you might have noticed some of the more observant of you, perhaps uh, I'm quite tall. Um, but uh, one of the good things about being six foot five is that um, I can't make myself shorter, I can't make myself fit in. I'm not going to be Joe Average. And that was a the real challenge as a teenager, but I just had to get that point of just accepting it, just think, well, that is who I am. And that started me on a journey of just accepting myself, and as I said, a bit about self-kindness. And a, a good few years ago now, I just had that moment with God where it's okay to be me. Do I have to be like somebody else? And what I got back was it's not only okay to be me, it's celebrated to be me. God has created us unique and individual. All of us are wonderful. And part of this sense of identity is hearing from God how much he loves you being you, how much he delights in you being you. God is so vast and, and rich and, and creative. And the thought that God would need everyone to look the same, you know, he's a much bigger God than that. God delights in the diversity of his creation. How can he have however many hundreds of versions of frog, for goodness sake, and think that he's got all of us to look the same? You know, God's all of creation. Trees are different. Insects, you know, tens of thousands of species. You know, there's so much diversity in creation, and that says that God loves it. And if God expects his creation and created his creation to be the same, then I think he wants it to not be the same, to be diverse. Um, then he has created us to be different and unique. And so that then, if I'm convinced of that, that means that me being me and you being you and that being different means that it's, there's no right or wrong. There's no right or wrong in how I experience God. There's no right or wrong in how I express myself. There's no right or wrong in terms of what I think is a great thing and you think is a great thing. And yes, there are challenges of how we manage ourselves and how we don't just suddenly become all orbiting different planets, but we manage to hold on to one another. And, and I have a, a, a dream, a picture um, of tapestry. And uh, if you imagine the tapestry, it, there are so many colors. 
And it's not just that the colours are varied and different. The threads are different. There'll be thinner threads, there'll be thicker threads, smooth threads, th uh, bobbly threads, for want of a better word. I'm looking at Lydia now, thinking she should know. Um, but, you know, they might be tightly knit, they might be loosely knit, there might be, you know, lots and lots of colours all jumbled together, or it might be a bit that's all fairly similar colours all, all together. But that picture of a tapestry, if it was all one colour, if it was all one thread, that's not a tapestry. That's a blanket, isn't it? So, you know, I just thought of that. That was good. <laughs> so I just have this picture that we as God's people are being weaved together in our diversity. But the thing about a tapestry is that we are weaved together. We're not little threads hanging, dangling around a wall. We're weaved together, and that richness will display God's glory and his splendor like nothing else. And lastly, the thing I've learned is that being heavenly-minded is of earthly use. That phrase that is so heavenly-minded, there's no earthly use, is actually wrong. The more I live in an awareness of the presence of God in me and around me, I will begin to see the world change, and it'll become more like him. If I make God my focus, he will change the things around me. It will bring a little bit more of heaven and earth, and we will see the glory of the Lord cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So I've been loving this, this phrase uh, recently, and I know I, I heard Bill Johnson say it, and I wish I could remember quite how he said it, but my interpretation of it is if we just stay full, if we just fill ourselves with the love of God and the presence of God, then we will see amazing things happen around us. So turn up full wherever you are, and let's see what God will do. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you so much that you chose each and every one of us. And you chose us not just to be a, a number or a pew filler. God, you chose us to be the apple of your eye, the one in whom you delight. You chose us, chose us to be your child, to have that close connection of fellowship with you, and the one in whom you can display your glory. God, we just want to say first and foremost, thank you. We are so grateful that you did this and you gave us opportunity to respond. Father, I ask this morning that you'd help each of us understand more of what it means to be your child, what it more, more of what it means to be loved by the King of Heaven. And Father, would you grow our awareness of your presence, our awareness of what it means to see the face of God looking back with adoration, looking back with love, looking back with affection towards us, and God, for those who perhaps have never seen this, would you open eyes? Would you fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we can see how great is your love for us? God, we love you and thank you. Thank you, God. Amen.